page 1073 is where we still are. Keep going back and checking in the Bibles we use, and we're still on page 1073, which is fine. That's where John 17 will be found. That is what we are examining this morning as Christ prays what is his high priestly prayer, always faithful to make intercession for us. And as you turn there to uh, page 1073, 1073, uh, I want to remind you that this prayer has been uh, divided into three sections. Every commentator agrees with this, verses 1 through 5, which we've studied already. The prayer for the glory of the Father and the Son. We, we saw how Jesus was so uh, obsessed, if that's the right word, with the glory of his Father and desired that he would uh, be glorified for the sake of his Father. And then verses 6 through 19, the prayer for his own disciples. And we noted that that's particularly the 11 uh, that he is thinking of in those verses, but its application clearly is to all of us, as I think we'll see again this morning. And then verses 20 through 26, where he particularly prays for those who would believe because of their witness and their faithfulness to, to lay down and build upon Jesus Christ, the only foundation, what is called the foundation of the church. Uh, that was by the apostles that the Lord had uh, set that foundation upon Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so he prays for all of those who will believe, which includes, of course, you and I this morning, if you are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we've already studied the first uh, section, verses 1 through 5, and last time we were together, we just began to look at verses 6 through 19. And we noted in introduction or by way of introduction that Jesus was praying for his disciples particularly uh, for several reasons. And this is by way of introduction. They were men, he says, given to Jesus by the Father. They were the gift of the Father to Jesus. They were men who were taken out of the world, men to whom the name of God had been faithfully manifested by Christ in his teaching. They are men who have kept his word, which we marvel that Jesus would describe these disciples, 11 of them, as men who kept his word. They were unfaithful, as unfaithful can be in so many different ways. And yet Jesus describes them as men who have kept his word. And they finally would be men who would serve as the very foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for them specifically. Uh, he prays for them focused in this section, but its application again is for every one of us as believers. At the end of the last sermon in that introduction, I noted that commentators themselves have noted, and this is old and new commentators alike, that there are at least three great themes. There probably are more in these verses, but there are at least three great themes that we find in his prayer for his disciples specifically. Eric Alexander, a great Scottish preacher, modern-day Scottish preacher, describes it this way as he divides those three, consistent with other commentators. There is the theme of preservation of our security and safety. There is the theme of separation, how Jesus prays that we would be kept separate from the world, though still living in it. And then there is the prayer, especially in verse 17, of our consecration to the Lord by the word of God. And so those are the three sections that we're looking at, and we're just looking at the first one this morning. I said last time we would look at each of these in order, and we are this morning looking at Jesus' prayer to his Father, 
that he would preserve and keep his disciples through many trials and tribulations of this life, that he would keep them safe and secure from all alarms. And so with that in mind, stand as we read again these verses. I'm going to read them each time, verse 6 through 19, that we might see the whole of this prayer for his disciples and have it before us. Again, John 17, beginning in verse 6, this is God's word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you set, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that your word would be blessed now by the Holy Spirit, the author who spoke to men of old, so that they would write down the very words that you would have us to know and understand. We are in need of that spirit to apply that word to our hearts and minds, that we might rest in comfort and with great joy in all that you have promised us. And so bless your word to our hearing and to our growth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you heard those verses read, I think you can see most clearly, if you look at verse 11 through verse 15, that really is the section we're talking about, 11 through 15. There's where the focus of Jesus' prayer really comes upon this idea of our protection and our preservation. You'll notice in that section, uh, verse 14, for instance, Jesus prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. None were lost except the son of destruction. And then he prays that God himself, the father, would keep them, verse uh, 15, from the evil one. 
And so this idea of being kept or preserved or kept safe and secure, the protection of God's people is really what is in view here as we look at these verses together this morning. It's about his preservation of the saints. One of the great themes of our Reformed theology is that God promises throughout his word that he will keep those whom he has called to himself. Jesus himself spoke in John 6 and John 10 of how the Lord keeps us in his hands and we are in Christ's hands as well so that being in the hands of Christ and the hands of the Father, we are kept secure. And and that is necessarily then what Jesus prays in these verses. Uh, It is, I believe, uh, really, as I said in the very beginning of our study, I think it is the primary emphasis and focus of this prayer is that God's people would be kept by the power of God. Now, this morning, we're going to learn about what that actually means. But as I was preparing this week, the the refrain of one of these great gospel hymns that we all know, I'm sure, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, came to my mind, which is why the sermon title is what it is. In that wonderful gospel hymn, you may know the story of it, but it was actually written by several people. The words, the refrain, which is leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms was written by a man by the name of Anthony Showalter. And he wrote those words in a card that he sent or a letter that he sent to two students that he had had in the past who had both written to him around the same time indicating that both of their wives, they were living in different parts of the country, but both of their wives have died and were buried actually on the same day. And as he was thinking about what to write to them, He wrote in that letter of sympathy the refrain, which is based really on the words of Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That was a wonderful promise God made to his people of old, promise he makes to us as well, that he carries us through the most difficult of times And he wanted to encourage these students that they can lean upon the Lord and trust in him and that they will be, and their wives already were, safe and secure from all alarms. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to do so under three headings as we look at the Lord's prayer for us, for his disciples initially, but his prayer for us as well. And the first heading is this. That we have, and the disciples did, of course, a great need for this prayer. I don't want to quickly leave the immediate context of the disciples, but I do want to ask you which one of us here this morning needs to be reminded that we live in a very, very dangerous world. If you were listening to the news this past week or several weeks, and again, I've encouraged you to be careful about the balance of that, you can get distracted and let off uh, base and become overwhelmed. But I feel, still think we should be watching and listening to those things. But if you have listened to them, you know that we live in a very dangerous world where random acts of violence are happening every single day. 
We live mere miles from the seventh largest city in the nation just to our west and from the first largest city in America to our north, Philadelphia and New York. And in both of those cities, they are fraught with crime. Again, these random acts of violence that would lead us to simply lock ourselves in our homes for fear that we would be subject to or fall into that kind of violence. These are scary times. And we know instinctively that we need protection and safety. And as Christians, we know ultimately that that safety and protection is found in God himself and his promises to us. But this has always been the case for God's people, wherever they were, Old or New Testament alike. The world was always a dangerous place. Verse 14 of our text, for instance, this morning, tells us that very thing. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. That's important for us to understand as we think of God's protection. We are living in a world that hates us. It hates us because we have, we bear, we live out the word of God. It hated Jesus first. We need only to read the Gospels and the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can see the hatred that the world had for Jesus as he bore testimony to the truth that the Father had given to him to proclaim. The same is true today for us. The same was true for the disciples. In fact, he's praying for them in particular because he knows and he's told them before that the world will hate you. All you need to do is listen to some of the rhetoric. Some of you have already experienced this. Some of the rhetoric that's coming from the recent Supreme Court decision or any other cultural issue that you take a stand on as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are automatically met with deep hostility, anger, and condemnation. There is no discussion anymore. There's no debate. There's no friendly engagement with those who are of the world and who hate Christ and the followers of Jesus Christ. We are experiencing now as believers, if we take those stands, we proclaim our opinion, if you will, rooted and founded upon God's word and revelation, that this is what we believe about marriage, about abortion, about any number of things that are going on in our culture. There is no middle ground anymore. The world simply and immediately hates with such an hostility, anger, and condemnation, even as it did the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he endured throughout his whole earthly ministry. Think of the things that were said of him as he sought to heal the sick and the lame and the suffering. Think of all that was spoken about him by the crowds and about his followers. It is, the Bible says, what we ought to expect. The world will hate us. But there's more in this passage and why he prays this and the need that we have. And it's in verse 15, as Jesus says, I am praying that you, Father, would keep them from the evil one. The evil one, of course, here being Satan himself, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of all of his followers. Keep them from the evil one. It's what Jesus had in mind when he prayed for Peter. Remember, we've mentioned this several times. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Who was assailing the faith of Peter? Satan was. 
Satan was attacking Peter. Jesus said that. Satan has asked permission that he might sift you like wheat. And his whole aim is that his faith would fail, that he would falter and no longer believe what the Lord had taught him. This is seen in a dramatic way, in a uh, pictorial way, in a symbolic way. We know from the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 12, you have this wonderful imagery of a woman giving birth, Israel of old, being the old covenant people of God, Jesus coming from the loins of Israel, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have this picture of Satan coming and attacking, seeking to destroy the child to be born, which is the Messiah. You have the wonderful deliverance of the Messiah, the one, the babe born, taken into heaven, his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And then you have these words. The dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman, the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There is in pictorial graphic language from Revelation, the whole story of the New Testament church. Satan, because he can no longer get to Christ, having failed to destroy him at the cross, now goes to the followers of Jesus who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you're doing that today, you are experiencing exactly what Jesus said that you and I will experience. It it is part of the nature. Jesus tells us, Paul and Peter tell us, don't be surprised. They hated me first. They will hate you as well. But here's the great promise and really looks to the ultimate answer of this prayer. Jesus says to his disciples earlier in John 14, I believe, or 16, you will have many troubles in this world, but I have overcome the world. And so the promise is given, even at the outset, even with the promise of persecution and suffering because of Christ, he says, I've already overcome the world, so do not fear. Do not worry or live in fear. So we have first, and Jesus acknowledges it in his prayer, we have a need for this prayer today. And here's the good news. This prayer is still being prayed for you by Jesus at God's right hand. He's still praying for you every moment of every day that your faith, my faith, would not fail. That in the troubles and trials and persecutions, the hatred, the hostility, the condemnation that we receive from the world, Jesus is praying that our faith will not fail. Peter's didn't fail because Jesus prayed for him. Yours and mine, if we are truly Christ, will not fail as well because Jesus is praying for us. We have an ongoing, continuing great need for this prayer. Secondly, Jesus tells us that in the prayer, the answer is already given. The answer is already given. By this I mean, how will it be that we will be preserved, kept safe and secure from all alarms? How is it that we will be? Note that Jesus says it very clearly in the verses here. In first verse, in verse 12, while I was with them, he says, I kept them in your name. It was the calling of Jesus as the Messiah who chose these 12 men who were given, these 11 for whom he prays, who were given to him by the Father, that he would preserve, keep, and protect them, that none of them would be lost, 
and we'll talk about Judas in a moment, but that none would be lost, that all would persevere until the end. That was his, if you will, calling and responsibility. And Jesus says to his father as he prays in verse 12, I have kept them in your name. Now, commentators, it's interesting, have a number of ways to explain what that means. The name of God is his being, his character, his attributes. So you think of the name of God as all of his attributes which make him God. And and what Jesus is saying, certainly among perhaps many things in that phrase, is that I've kept them in that power of who you are. I have preserved them through the very power that is part of who God is in keeping and preserving his own. I have done that faithfully. But, But I think there's an emphasis here on the word of God actually being used as a means by which he is keeping them. It was through his intimate relationship with these 11 and the teaching of the word of God committed to him by the Father that Jesus kept these men. Judas, we know, absolutely denied who Jesus was, never trusted Jesus. Judas is not one lost who once was a believer. We'll talk about that again in a moment. But these 11 were kept by the word of God. We're going to see overlap when we talk about sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. They were set apart, kept, preserved by the word of God. And that is an incredibly important thing for us to understand. But it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus now acknowledges, as we've read the verses, that he is now leaving the world. Remember in John 14, they're disturbed by Jesus saying, I'm going to another place. And they say, where are you going? We, we want to be there too. And he says, no, I'm leaving. But know that I am the way to get to where I will be and you will be also. I go to prepare a place for you, he says. And so in his prayer, him leaving the world leads him then to ask the Father. And you see this in these verses. I am now coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because of it. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Most believers say, man, I wish that were not in here. (laughs) Most of us, when we're engaged in battle spiritually, as we're wrestling against sin in our lives, we long for the day where God will just deliver us and take us home to be with him, where the battle will end. But Jesus tells us up front, it's not the way it works. We're called and built and enabled for battle. But here's the promise. He now prays to the Father and he asks them, would you now keep them? Would you keep them and preserve them? Would you bring them home safely? What an incredible and wonderful promise. What an incredible prayer that God the Son would commend to God the Father that he would now be the one to receive us, to preserve us, to keep us until he brings us home safely. That's the answer to the prayer now. God the Father is preserving and keeping, and he shall until he brings us home. You know, there are many places in the Bible where you see this worked out, don't you? You read of the great and precious promises of God No greater than perhaps what we see in Romans 8. 
Romans 8 begins, as all of you know, perhaps, with no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends with no separation from the love of God. And in between is the story how both of those are true. And so in a chapter that begins with no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and ends with the way it does, you have these verses at the very end of Romans 8, and you know them well. But now think of them with respect to God, the Father, preserving us. Who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. There's the answer to the prayer. God the Father now preserves. He keeps as Jesus himself kept these 11 so that none were lost. So the Father will keep all whom he has given to Christ from all ages, and none, not one, will ever be lost. That is the preserving and keeping power of God. Now, what about Judas as a side note? He's not really a side note. Jesus mentions him here. I've guarded all of them, he says. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Many people struggle with this. Many people argue, does Judas not have a case to make in heaven if he were to stand before God and says, I never had a chance because from the beginning you destined me to be the betrayer of your son. Does he have a case? He doesn't. Just like Pharaoh doesn't have a case in the Old Testament. God created them for his own purpose and the display of his glory in the punishment of wickedness. I love the way R.C. Sproul says it in his study of these things when he speaks of Judas Iscariot, who is being mentioned here, who ended his life, as you know. Unlike Peter, who repented with tears, Judas did not. He had tears, but they were earthly tears, and he left this world under his own hand, taking his life in utter despair. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says, and it sounds harsh, but it is true, and we need to understand this. Judas was a devil from the beginning. Judas was an unregenerate, corrupt, treacherous, lying, thieving crook before he ever met Jesus. Yet God worked through his corruption to bring about the greatest work of salvation in all human history, as was the case with the brothers of Joseph. Judas meant it for evil, make no mistake about it, but God meant it for good. For God is sovereign over all things. And yes, Judas was the son of destruction or perdition from the very beginning. But he was a wicked man whom God simply left in his wickedness and used it all for the glory of his own name. So we see the need that we have for this prayer. We see the answer to the prayer. Jesus first preserving, keeping these 11. The Father preserving them and all who would come to believe in Jesus. 
And the third point, I think, is really the most important of this section, and that is, what is the focus of this prayer? It's important that we understand this point this morning for our own benefit and growth in grace. To answer it, let me ask another question. What is it that is being kept by the Lord and by the Father? What is it that is being kept? It is not our physical bodies and our lives as we so often view them in this world. God never promised that he will keep us from all harm to our bodies, that we will never be sick, that we will never suffer. You know there are branches of Christianity, quote unquote, that are in the world today and being exported to other nations that say that Christians, because of what Jesus did, should never be sick, never suffer or anything. That is an abomination before God. It is not what the Bible teaches. There would be no need for Jesus to ask the Father to preserve us in that way if that were in any sense true. In fact, what we read in the New Testament is that suffering is actually promised. It is actually guaranteed. And Peter and Paul both say we ought never to be surprised Jesus' own words, his own experience teaches us this very thing. You remember some of those words, don't you? When Jesus said things like this, don't ever be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of them. You have nothing to fear. God hasn't promised that your body is going to live forever. This body will die apart from Jesus returning. But remember what he said, but fear him who can kill both the body and cast the soul into hell. Or he asked this question, which impacted the lives of so many. What will a man actually gain if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It is our eternal soul that is in view here. That's what needs to be kept from the evil one. That's the great prize, isn't it? You're familiar if you love reading and uh, you love uh, reading especially older books, the Faustian legends, right? You read all of these Faustian legends of, of people who sell their soul to the devil for something, right? To play a violin, right? Charlie Daniels. Or any other thing, right? You sell your soul to the devil. That's folly, of course, but that's, a, that's part of the legend of the Faustian legends, it's the soul that's the great prize. It's the soul that Satan is after. Now, he'll work through the body and temptations to the body all day, as many of us know. But, but what he's after is the soul, the failing of our faith. He wants to steal us, if possible, from the, the grip of God the Father and God the Son. That's what he's trying to do. And when he prays for these 11, make no mistake, they understood, they clearly understood that it was not their bodies that Jesus had in view, but their eternal soul. And the Father is keeping as the Son kept in his ministry. The lives of these 11 men bear testimony to that. Every one of them, every one of them died martyrs for Christ except John. 
who in God's mercy was preserved and died a natural death. Peter lived under the tyranny of Nero, who also was responsible for the death of the Apostle Paul, killed the same year as Peter. He was thrown into a maritime prison in Rome. He was tortured for quite a period before he was taken to the Circus Maximus and executed by being crucified upside down. Tradition tells us he did not want to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus because he said he was not worthy to be executed in the same manner as he was. And so it was upside down. Andrew, his brother, the first one in the scriptures called to be a follower of Jesus, also suffered martyrdom. He was killed in 70 AD, the same year in which Jerusalem fell, and his crucifixion was on the cross in the shape of an X. Tradition tells us that when he saw the cross that had been prepared for his execution, he broke out with joy and he said, my whole life has been for the cross. And Andrew was delighted that he could join his Savior in death through crucifixion. He was not nailed to the cross. He was tied to the cross. And he lived on that cross for three days of torture before he died. James, the brother to John and one of the sons of Zebedee, called James the Greater, had the distinction of being the first apostolic martyr in Christian history. He was not the first martyr. Stephen was. But he was the first apostle to be martyred in the year 44 AD. James was martyred during a Jewish persecution led by Herod Antipas, which was the occasion for Peter's imprisonment and recorded in Acts right after James had been executed. So James is remembered as being the first of the apostles to be martyred in church history. John, I've already mentioned, his brother, one of the sons of Zebedee, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. For various reasons unknown to us, he never died martyrdom, but simply of old age. But he did suffer. On one occasion, he was scheduled to be executed by being boiled in oil. But somehow, we don't know how, he was able to escape. On another occasion, tradition tells us that he was supposedly to be executed by drinking poison. This time, it wasn't rescheduled. According to tradition, he drank the poison but it did not affect him. It was a miracle. He suffered but did not die. He didn't die until the Lord was ready to take him. Philip, like many of the disciples, Philip became a missionary and went to foreign lands after the day of Pentecost. Tradition tells us that the missionary outreach of Philip carried all the way to ancient Gaul or France. He also spent much time in Turkey where he was despised by the pagan priest and martyred in 54 AD. He was doubly martyred, if that is possible. First, he was stoned to the point of death, and then they finished the job by putting him on a cross. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, a man in whom there was no guile. From the testimony of church history and tradition, we are told that Nathaniel also became a missionary, started the first Christian church in Armenia, His ministry, however, caused conflict with the local pagan priests because they didn't like what he taught. Sound familiar? So he was martyred. He was killed in 70 AD, having his skin flayed with whips. That is being whipped so severely that most of his skin came off. And then he was crucified. Matthew, the tax collector, became a missionary. According to ancient tradition, he took the gospel to Ethiopia and was one of the first to visit and establish a church in Africa. 
He also got into problems with local pagan priests and was beheaded in A.D. 60 as a martyr for the faith. Thomas, known by many of us as Doubting Thomas and sometimes called one of the twins, we know the story of his doubt. We know the story of his profession after his doubt when he saw the Lord and proclaimed, My Lord and my God. He became a missionary to India and suffered martyrdom in A.D. 70, being killed with a spear. However, his confession, My Lord and my God, rings down through the ages even to this day. James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Lesser, he was different than the other James mentioned already. Tradition says he went to Syria, but in A.D. 63, he was recalled back to Jerusalem and tried by the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem as a heretic. He was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and told publicly to renounce Jesus. Instead, James reaffirmed his conviction that Christ was the Messiah and Son of God, whereupon he was thrown to the ground from the pinnacle of the temple. But that did not kill him. It merely broke his leg. And so to finish the job, the executioners came and hit James in the head with a large stone and killed him. Simon called the zealot. Zealots were a political party in Jesus' day, and it's amazing that Jesus would have a zealot as part of his 11 disciples. But he was a changed, transformed man by the grace of God. How interesting that Jesus would have him, and yet tradition tells us that he also went as a missionary after Pentecost. He went to North Africa, to Spain, and then to Britain, where in 74 AD he suffered martyrdom, as he was, like tradition says, like Isaiah, sawn in half. Judas, also named Thaddeus in the New Testament, little is known of him, though tradition we understand that he too was martyred in 70 AD by being shot with arrows and killed. Now, I read you all of that for one reason, to ask you this question. Did the prayers of Jesus fail? They all died. They suffered horrible deaths. Perish the thought The son is heard by the father, and every prayer he utters is answered by the father as the son prays, because the son and the father are in perfect union, and the father can never deny the son. His prayers did not fail, because it was never about the body. It was never about what would happen to these tents, as Peter calls them, that we will all one day put off. It has always been about the eternal soul. Matthew Henry says, these all relate to spiritual blessings and heavenly things. He does not pray that they might be rich and great in the world, that they might raise estates and get preferments, but that they might be kept from sin, furnished for their duty, and brought safely home to heaven. And every one of these, all 11, and every true believer in Christ will experience the same safety and security from all alarms. Though you may die, and I may die, in a horrible way, if the Lord is pleased. Because it's never been about my body, or yours, or theirs. It has always been about their souls. As we close, let me apply this in two ways. And I know the announcement from the pastor's Uh, as far as our thanks to you, mentions Christmas. We have other mentions, so I can't keep away from Christmas. There's a great hymn we sing at Christmas, God rest ye merry gentlemen. 
Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And then it says, O tidings of comfort and joy. So let me give you some tidings of comfort and joy in July. This study, this study this morning is certainly for your comfort this morning, believer. If you are in Jesus Christ, you must hear this prayer for you as it was for the disciples to be a source of great, incredible comfort for you, that you are kept by God the Father, by the power of the one who made all things by the word of his power, not that you will ever be free from trouble, as Calvin says, that you may bask in luxurious, luxurious ease, but by the help of God that you might be preserved from all danger to your eternal soul. That's the focus of the prayer, and that's the comfort we have as believers. Yes, are we fearful of the kinds of death? I've just read some horrible ways to die. Are we comforted and ease when we consider what the Lord may have prepared for us? No, we struggle with that sometimes. But in the midst of that suffering, the Lord promises to be with us and give us the eyes to see that it is our soul that is in view here. A debtor to mercy alone, a great hymn, we sing it often. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will never erase Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. You see what he says? They're more happy because this life is over for them. They are in the presence of God. They are more happy, guaranteed. Those we love who have gone on to glory, we don't want them back because they're more happy there. But they're not more secure than you and I are right now. They're not more secure than we are. We are equally secure because he holds us and keeps us. And that, brother and sister, ought to be a, piece, a place of great comfort for you. Secondly, it needs to be your greatest joy as well. I speak of this because of what Jesus says in verse 13. Did you notice? But now I am coming to you, he says. And these things I speak while I'm in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in and within themselves. You see what he's asking? He's comparing it to himself. Hebrews tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, the worst of suffering this world knows, despised its shame as being cursed of God, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He prays this prayer before he goes to the cross, and he says, I have a joy in this moment, even before I go to the cross, in light of the suffering that I will endure, because I am looking to the joy of being savior of a people God has given to me. He was not avoiding the shame of the cross. He was not denying it, pretending it would never happen. He knew it would happen in Gethsemane. He sweated drops of blood. He knew it would happen. But there was a joy that undergirded him, a delight to do his father's will, to die in the place of the people he had given to him. And he is saying that I want that joy 
in the midst of the suffering that these men will endure to be known by them now, right now. And so he prays that the joy would be fulfilled in his people, that they would know it. Does that sound crazy to you? Impossible? Does it sound like pie in the sky, unrealistic? Does it sound unfeeling and uncaring of our Savior? To ask the Father to give us joy in the midst of suffering and the trials and in the face of the enemies of this world? It's not impossible. It's not pie in the sky. It is the gospel lived out in the lives of his people in the midst of the worst of suffering that this world could ever dish out to those who follow and love Jesus. And it's not impossible for you either if you remember the need that you have for Jesus to pray for you in this way. If you remember the answer that he's already given, that he has kept and the Father will keep all of those who come to him. And if you remember the focus is not your body, not what you suffer in the flesh, but your eternal soul. Both Peter and Paul wrote and they knew that the time of the putting off of this body was coming. Peter, in the passage we read earlier, Paul to Timothy, he says, I know my my life is being poured out like a drink offering right now. This tent has to be put off. And it was true of all the disciples for whom he prayed. Jesus' prayer did not fail. They were preserved. They were kept to the end. And brothers and sisters, they were kept to the end with great joy. Every one of them, none of them faced persecution, martyrdom, death itself, with anything but joy. Remember what one of them said, the cross. I've lived my whole life for the cross. What a privilege to die on it. To those believers, even this morning, who are here and not here, who are experiencing great suffering in your bodies and perhaps in your mind, I I cannot tell you, I wish I could, but I cannot tell you that your trials will end in this life or that this too shall pass. But I can tell you that your Father in heaven will keep your soul and he will preserve you unto the day of Christ. He will not allow your faith to falter if you are his. I can promise you that he will not let you go, but will keep you and he will uphold you with his everlasting arms. He will keep you from the evil one And as you look to him in faith, believing his promises, he will allow you to endure and triumph even with great joy. It's true for all of us, no matter where we are, no matter how long we live, no matter if the Lord gives health and strength or sickness and suffering, no matter what we may be facing, cancer or surgery, this promise is sure and true. He will keep you. And he will bring you home safely. As elders, as we pray for those, especially for those who suffer with long-standing illness, which wears upon our hearts and minds in ways few of us know. As elders, we have often prayed and said, if we could take it from you, we would. But the Lord has committed these things unto you, that you might, in your suffering, be filled with joy in how God preserves you. As I spoke to Elder Martirogian this morning on the phone, I reminded him that when I visit him as he has surgery, I will probably read, as I often do, from Psalm 121. 
Now, some of you already know why I read that psalm, because I've already told you, much to your depression in the moment. But when I go and I meet with people, surgery is serious no matter what it is. I remember when I had the procedure done for my heart, had this thing put in my chest, all that. I remember struggling through these things, and I remember Psalm 121. I remember the focus of Psalm 121. It's not that you'll come out of surgery okay. It's not the focus. And I tell people when I pray Psalm 121, it's not the way it ends. The way it ends is he will protect and preserve your soul, your life. That's it, not your body. So you may not come out of this. Are you okay with that? And most people understand I'm okay because the Lord shall preserve me from all evil and he shall preserve my soul. This is true because Jesus prayed it. And every one of his people given to him by the Father will be kept safe in his care, whether that be in this life with more years or in heaven where time flows into eternity, where we will always and forever be safe and secure from all alarms. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who keeps his people. And it is, Lord, we know in direct response to this prayer that our Savior prayed for these 11 and for all who are in him, that as he has kept us, so you, our Father, will keep us. Give us that comfort and joy which belong to those who are in Christ that we might rest, and not just rest, but flourish and grow and delight in all that you are. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.